saints, if you would remain standing for the reading of the Word of God from Psalm 90, from Psalm 90, we'll read the psalm, all 17 verses, in its entirety, and then you may be seated as we ask the Lord's blessing for understanding. This is the holy and the inerrant Word of God. Let us give it our careful attention A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. Or as a watch in the night, you have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening, it fades and withers away. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath, we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, and if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us. And the years we have seen evil, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord your God be upon us and confirm to us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. You may be seated. As you are, let's ask for the Lord's help as we look into his word together this morning. Our God in heaven, we confess that we are not sufficient for these things, that our hearts are not hearts of wisdom, but prone to foolishness, prone to think that life goes on forever. Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom from above, that you would teach us even this morning by your Holy Spirit, that we would be stirred up to take heed to the words placed before us, that we would take account of ourselves in light of your holy word. God, we pray also that you would give us understanding, that you would Give us a a great understanding and a heart to know you, even in your exalted, eternal glory. Lord, that we might flee from these present passing evil things, these things that are being carried away in the flood of your wrath, that we would flee to you and find our happy and holy and safe habitation in you, our true dwelling place, our rock and our refuge. God, even now, instruct us by your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear hearts to receive all that you have written, that we might be built up in our holy faith. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. These words are from James 4, verse 14, and they're a sobering reminder to us of the brevity of life. And though we often marvel at how quickly time flies by, It is nevertheless the case that we tend to also sort of ironically think that we have all the time in the world. You blink and it's over, and yet you think that it will somehow go on. We need frequent reminders of how fleeting life truly is. This is not meant to discourage us, but to stir us up to lay hold of that which really lasts. The reminder of the brevity of life is not merely meant to arrest you and to confront you, but it's also meant to stir you to take hold of that one who lasts and that one who offers eternal life. This life is fleeting, few of days and full of trouble, as Job says in Job 14. But it's not for that reason unconcerned with eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God places eternity in the heart of every man. And though life is fleeting, we understand that somehow it is connected to and matters in the eternal scheme of things. Man finds his true good and his abiding home in something other than this short-lived stint on earth. 
Jesus instructs us to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, Matthew 6. In Psalm 90, we have the words of Moses, the only psalm of Moses that is included in the Psalter. Moses wrote songs, uh, hymns of praise that are recorded in the Pentateuch, but this is the only one of Moses' psalms that is, that is collected in the Psalter, written to give counsel to people who were rootless and ruined. It's an interesting psalm about life quickly fleeing by and an eternal home to people who really had no home of their own. The middle portion of the psalm is severe, but designed to heal those who will take it to heart. If you will, as it were, drink this medicine and really take it to heart and let it do your work, let it do its work, it will be good for you. Death and judgment are poignant in the middle portion of the psalm, but they are neither its beginning nor for those who would trust themselves to God in Christ, its end. Rather, Moses begins by directing our attention toward that one home that endures, namely God himself. He then considers how far humanity has fallen from its eternal dwelling. In fact, he even tells us the reason for it. It's because of our sin, which is ever before the Lord. The picture is indeed bleak, at least up through verse 11. Finally, starting in verse 12, he lights the way back to God through a series of hopeful petitions. We'll see that in each of these petitions, ultimately their resolution and their answer is in Christ crucified and raised. So as we work through this psalm together, I want us just to make four observations working through the psalm in order. First, an eternal dwelling, verses 1 and 2. Secondly, a brief journey, verses 3 to 6. Thirdly, a hard journey, verses 7 through 11. And then fourthly, the way back home verses 12 through 17. First then, consider verses 1 and 2, an eternal dwelling. You have been our dwelling place, our hiding place. Some ancient texts say our refuge, which is a common thing, but dwelling or habitation is more the idea. Speaking to God, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses begins with a prayer to God in which believers are reminded of the fact that they are sojourners upon the earth, that your home is not here. This is just where you're staying for a little while. Sometimes people say that. Where are you staying? And it almost makes it sound like you're passing through, like you're transient. And we are, in fact, transient. Our home is really not here. Our foot plants itself for a short while as we are in motion toward our true home. He says, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. It's a strange statement, actually, to begin a psalm. Uh, God's a someone, not a somewhere. And yet he's called our dwelling place. That God isn't just where your home is, like I might be at home with my own family when we're in our house, um, but I am not their dwelling place. I'm just one of the inhabitants that dwells there with them. But he says something a little stranger than that to us. He says, you have been, you have been our dwelling place. Not just a somewhere, but a someone is our habitation, is where we make our home, where we find our rest, where we are, where we find our provision. For the believer, our home is truly where our heart is, and our heart is rooted in God and the joy of his presence shining upon us. This is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's in fellowship with an enjoyment of God that the believer should say, wherever he is, I am home. The words are striking in as much as they aren't written to people who lived in houses that were their own. And in fact, in the case of the patriarchs, uh, even long before the time of Moses, Abraham and Isaac uh, and Jacob lived as sojourners, even in the land of promise. In fact, they lived in tents. They were nomads even in the land given to them. We're told that in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and following of Abraham's sojourn, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out from a place which he, uh, to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out and not knowing where he was going, and by faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. 
he got to Canaan, he got to the promised land, and he still wasn't home. That's what the writer is telling us. And in fact, we're told that it wasn't a a trick, that that Abraham himself knew that he wasn't home. Verse 10, for he was looking for the city which has foundations. That is to say, by foundations, a tent doesn't have foundations. It just has pegs and cables, uh, so to speak, and draperies holding it up. But he was looking for a city that has foundations, and he didn't find it in Canaan. Even Jebus, which was there at that time, uh, uh, the uh, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which was later called Jebus. We get Jerusalem from that city. Uh, but even that wasn't the home he was looking for. Verse 10, he was looking for a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. He wasn't looking for a habitation made by human hands, but one made by God, even eternal in the heavens. Verse 16, he desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them. This is a psalm written to people who still don't have a home on earth. These are This is written to people that had only recently uh, been for more than 400 years sojourners, not even in the land of promise, but in the foreign land of Egypt. Abraham and his descendants had been strangers and exiles in Canaan and then in Egypt, and now in the wilderness, heading back to Canaan. Perhaps some might object to that Abraham was seeking heaven for his dwelling and not God per se. He was seeking a city. He was seeking a heavenly habitation. But he wasn't seeking God as his home. He was seeking heaven as his home. And yet, I submit to you that to seek heaven and to seek God are not really different things. Heaven and God are not ontologically the same thing. Heaven is a created order of things. But heaven is a created order of things which is designed and outfitted to amplify the glory of God. In fact, even as you read the descriptions given to us in Scripture of heaven, uh, it's always uh, shimmery and reflective and translucent, uh, which may not be your decor style, but it certainly is meant to amplify the brilliance of the glory that fills that place. In fact, at a, in a certain point, heaven is heaven only because it is full of the presence of God's glory. In John's Apocalypse, Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, he says, speaking of that eternal state of that city, he says, and I saw no temple in the city. But not exactly. I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty. The dwelling place, the tabernacle, the dwelling is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. To call God our dwelling place here and now is to experience, in a certain sense, a foretaste of heaven. To say that he's my dwelling place now is to, in fact, have permanence amidst impermanence. You could be evicted from your house. Could be by a property owner. But it could also be by a storm. Storm can evict your house from your house by destroying it. It could be, you could be evicted from your house by mold. You could be, well, you live in the West and it's dry. You don't get as much mold. But in the East, you could be evicted from your house by mold. Uh, all sorts of things could, as it were, take away your dwelling place. A loss of job, a job transfer, natural disasters, wars, harsh landowners. There are ways in which we can ha- we can be deprived of our dwelling. This is possible. And in the midst of impermanence, and perhaps some of you feel this way, you've, most of you have probably lived in more than one place uh, in your life. We tend not to be born, live, grow, die in the same house. I was once visiting a, a friend in England in the, in the countryside. He was in his mid-70s. Um, we were sitting at breakfast in the, in the uh, dining room. His house had been standing since the early 1700s. And I said to him, well, where were you born? And he, he said to me, I was born on this table in this room where we're eating breakfast. That's, didn't, he didn't get far from home. I mean, he was in his seventies and he's still eating breakfast on the table that he was born, the room where he was born. Most of us do not experience that kind of durability of housing or living arrangements in this life. 
Life has a tendency to move us around, to change our condition. But in the midst of impermanence, in the midst of shiftiness, we have a home and a habitation that is immobile and immovable and enduring. Verse 2 then amplifies this in an extraordinary way. There's, it's a sense in which if, if God is our dwelling place, perhaps you want to go and make an investigation of your dwelling place. When I've purchased a house or in the past purchased houses, um, I ordinarily pay some fee to have someone do a home inspection uh, before I close on the deal because I want to know how stable this is. Are there, is there a gas leak? Are, is there mold? Are there, are there states of disrepair I should be aware of? Uh, in fact, in one case, I paid to have the home inspection. I had an offer in. And after the home inspection, I ate my, I just ate the fee because the home was not suitable. So let's ask the question. How is this dwelling place of yours? The one that lasts from generation to generation? What is its condition? How, can we ask you this way? How durable is it? Is it going to fall down? Is it going to be swept away by a flood? Is the Bakersfield sun in September going to sort of burn a hole through the roof? I mean, what, how, how lasting is it? Verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Our dwelling place is not of this world. Our dwelling place, in fact, isn't in time so to speak. Our dwelling place isn't marked by the ravages of seasons and cosmic events or by the passage of years. He doesn't exist in that way. He's not the kind of thing for which the passage of time could wear him down. There are places in the world today in which people dwell in, there are places in Macedonia right now where people dwell in houses that are over, stone houses over 500 years old. These are pretty durable habitations. They're not particularly comfortable or energy efficient, uh, but they stand up. I don't think most of our houses were built to last. I've lived in houses. I've wondered if they were meant to last 50 years. Um, our houses tend not to last. Some do. The Pantheon in Rome has stood for 2,000 years. The nave in the center of the Westminster Abbey was built in 1050. They still have church services there every day. Petra was carved long ago, and its facades there in Jordan still stands and amaze visitors. There are durable places, but they're, they're in time. They once weren't, and then they came to be, and they may once not be again. In fact, it's a marvel, even after World War II, that there are certain ancient structures in Italy that are no longer. Now, the Pantheon and others in Rome still stand, but many are taken away. They, they suffice for one generation or another, but you know what? They don't suffice throughout all generations. Eventually, there's a generation that can no longer inhabit that dwelling. It isn't suitable for the well-being of human life. There are houses like this. Sometimes you've just got to say it's over. I can't, I can't fix this up enough to save it. God is not of time. He's not among the beings that have come to be. Theologians sometimes put it this way, that God is pure being with no admixture of becoming. God isn't moving through a history. He's exalted above all history. God isn't being built up. God isn't being repaired. God isn't falling apart. He's not built by an architect or established by some natural force like a cave might be. Rather, with God, things are quite the other way around. He's the one who makes all, but he himself is not made. An unmade habitation. John 1.3 says of God the Son, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing has come into being that has come into being. Moses in verse 2 speaks of the mountains, probably because mountains are among the older things. When he says, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, before the mountains were born, when you think about the ancient things, the Bible sometimes speaks about ancient hills, Deuteronomy 33, there Moses talks about everlasting hills. Well, not in the strict sense, but compared to the things that come and go, compared to this building, Mount Whitney's been around a long time. Compared to this building, the Tehachapis just to the south of us have been there for a long time. And so comparatively, we might talk about the hills as eternal or everlasting. They endure while the human structures sort of come and go. 
In fact, there are things that come and go. I think of the Kern River. (laughs) The mountains are there. There are the mountains to the east and the south and the west. The Kern River bed remains. I haven't seen the Kern River since I've lived here. I've seen the river bed. Um, The river has been, the water's been diverted and it's dried up, but the mountains remain. Mountains seem to just be more durable than rivers and structures. and, And he says, and yet God precedes all of them in being. They are his handiwork. They once were not, and they were brought about. And even mountains fall down. Storms can do it. Sometimes they slip into the heart of the sea, and it cuts off Route 101, and people are angry. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes they fall down because we blow them up (laughs) so as to flatten the mountain, make something of them. Even the mountains, which seem to endure and remain, come and they go. And yet he says of God, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is, a, it's an, it's a, it's, I think, a deliberate kind of ironic way of speaking. How could something be from everlasting and to everlasting? Wouldn't, how could, how could everlasting be a past state? How could everlasting be what God was? It would seem like the kind of thing that shouldn't be able to end and be a was. I think this is what he's after. From everlasting to everlasting, it would be the equivalent of saying that God is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega. He does not have his existence from one time unto another. There is no, as it were, calculating or counting up the years of God. He is our dwelling place in all generations. And what a dwelling place he is. He doesn't come. He doesn't go. He is. He is. You want permanence in the midst of impermanence? Attach your heart And attach yourself to him. Grab hold of him in faith. Be united to him and draw near to him. And you will have that which endures and that which remains. He says in Psalm 102, the psalmist says, Of old, verse 25, you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Listen to this. Of the heavens, even they will perish, but you endure. The moon's been around a long time. I anticipate, barring the Lord's return and the melting down of all things, the moon's going to be here after I'm gone. But he says, even they, even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. Verse 27, but you are the same. Or, you are he. Probably denotes the I am. An eternal dwelling place. Secondly, consider together a brief journey. Verses 3 to 6, a brief journey. Man lost this stability when he rebelled. Man forsook his eternal dwelling in God, and man tried to establish a kingdom and a place for himself on earth in his own act of will and disobedience. And the consequence is that from dust he came and to dust he shall return. And in echoing the language of Genesis chapter 3, he says in verse 3 here, you turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of man. If God's years do not come to an end, if he's from everlasting to everlasting, let us be quick to say, you aren't. You aren't. You come and you go. Moses now challenges us with the reality that each human life is astonishingly short. Our illusions to the contrary, notwithstanding, from the perspective of eternity, it's an insignificant moment, a drop in the bucket as nothing before him. First in verse 3, the echo of Genesis 3.19, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Charles Spurgeon says this, The frailty of man is thus forcibly set forth. God creates him out of the dust, and back to the dust he goes at the word of his creator. God resolves and man dissolves. A word created and a word destroys. Sent back to the dust by the very God who by his word called him forth from that dust. Look at look what he says. He does, it's not the law of entropy. It's not things break down. Look at what he says. You turn man back to the dust. It's not just the way of nature that man goes back to the dust. It's that he goes back to the dust by the word of his creator in judgment. You turn man back to the dust and say, return, O children of man. It's not a, I guess things break down. Nothing lasts forever. We have all sorts of kind of benign ways of explaining death. My my least favorite of all time probably is, you know, death's just a part of life. I'm not sure there's a stupider statement. (laughs) It's exactly not that. Death isn't a part of life. Death is the end of life. Now, I know what people mean. They mean people die all the time and my life goes on and... 
I go to many funerals and people die and it's just part of life that we witness other people dying. But death isn't a part of life. Death is, in fact, precisely the end of life. Verse 4 colorfully amplifies this. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. To God, the world is not old. He's the ancient of days, which is to say, not that God's old or young, he's outside of time, but that he's to be revered above all days. But to God, the world isn't old, it isn't ancient, it's a work of yesterday, as it were. A thousand years is like something that just occurred as a day that just passed. Now, of course, with God, there is no past and there is no future. There's no tomorrow. There's no yesterday. There's an eternal, boundless, perfect, incomprehensible now that is the fullness of his life from everlasting to everlasting fullness of being. He is God. But the psalmist speaks this way probably because to us, the moments that are behind us seem shorter than the moments that are before us. All right. I mean, if you I'm just thinking back, my son is soon to graduate high school. That's the plan. Very, very soon uh, in a couple of months time. And he's going to look back on his high school career. Half of it spent in Philadelphia, half of it spent in Bakersfield. And that will be kind of a, a nice dividing line between his sophomore and junior year. But as he looks back on his four years of high school, it will seem to him, maybe it already does seem to him, I'm told he has senioritis, it's a thing people catch in their last year of high school, and it just seems like a moment, like it was just yesterday, I was a freshman and now I'm a senior, and yet when you're a freshman, it just feels like these four years are going to be long and rich, and they might be rich, um, and they might be comparatively long, given that you're only 14 going into it. But by the time you get to 18, it just doesn't feel like as long as you thought it was going to be at 14 going into high school. This is how it is. We think of this with summer vacations. That week-long vacation that you're planning on the planning side in the future seems so long. And then it's Saturday and you're driving home and you think, where did the time go? I, I blinked and it was, it's gone. It's over. He says, verse 4, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. Some of you have lived some years. Sometimes you, some, there are events in your life that were important events that you don't even know in which year they happened. There are things I can't right now, something that happened in late 2007 or early 2008. (laughs) It's, it's just, it's back then. It's just part of the little that time period. And it all starts to, in a certain sense, get shorter and shorter and shorter in your memory. It's the world is like this to God. It's like what your memories are to you in a kind of analogous way. It's like that to God. It's like a, it's like a just collapsed moment in time. A moment in time. A watch in the night is a three hour period. Midnight to 3 a.m. would be a watch. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. would be another watch. Most of us sleep through the watches. And in fact, if you sleep through the watch, it feels very short. For 14 years, I worked as an overnight security guard. Um, and I spent most of 14 years awake from midnight till 4 or 5 p.m. Um, and so those watches were longer for me. But when I finally got off of that schedule and I went to sleep, how amazing that you close your eyes and you open them and it feels like you just lay down and five hours have passed. More than a while, almost two watches. Sometimes you lay down and it's six hours, two watches, and it felt like you just blinked. It says, that's what time to God. That's what our, our the human. It's not just your life. Human history is a blink of an eye, a blink of an eye. Moses is not suggesting to us an exact ratio here. One year, a thousand years, you know, this, this sort, I think he's just simply using a number to say. It's not as long as you think it is. And to God, it's but a moment. Matthew Henry says, betwixt a minute and a million years, there is some proportion But betwixt time and eternity, there is none. The long lives of the patriarchs were nothing to God. Not so much as the life of a child. A child that's born and dies the same day is to theirs. That's what a, that's what Methuselah, 969 years is to God. In verse five, he changes the imagery to that of a flood. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. Time removes the children of men from this life like a flood that rapidly sweeps away everything in its path. Perhaps you've seen videos of a flash flood in which 
someone is looking out their office building and cars are floating by on top of a river that appeared out of nowhere coming through the parking lot. If you haven't, it's there on YouTube. Um, But sometimes it's not just houses, or it's not just cars, sometimes entire buildings and structures. Sometimes roofs, roofs of buildings are floating by. The buildings have been destroyed. The roofs are being swept away. The vehicle, these are, these are big items. These are things that should remain. These are things that should endure. And yet the flood comes and it takes them away in a moment. Most of all, of course, during the time of Noah, they thought life would go on this way forever and ever. And a flood came very quickly and carried them all away. A sudden, rapid removal of all that we consider stable and abiding. And the thing is, this is going on. And yet look at this. He says, and they fall asleep. You're sleeping through it. The flood is taking it all away. The flood is taking away your days rapidly, quickly. As you get older, it feels like the flood is just taking away more and more and more, more quickly. And the tendency of mankind is to just pretend it isn't happening. The flood is, wake up. Wake up. This is a moment. It's We're just about to get swept out of here. Be alert. Be ready. Man sleeps. All is well. Peace, peace. When there's no peace. He then changes the imagery yet again at the end of verse 5. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. Its lifespan is a day. A little, a little sprout, green, verdant, ready for life. And it grows up quickly. It's scorched. It's gone. I love driving through, uh, through the... Uh, Grapevine during the spring, February, March, when the hills are green, you almost think this could be Ireland, the the Emerald Isle. But no, it's just the hill south of Bakersfield, um, and it's beautiful green. And by the end of May, golden—that's the word, not brown. Golden. It's gold. It's green. Then it's golden, and then it seems barren. It's quick. It's here. It's gone. It seems like just the other day this was green. The next time you drive through it, it's. Brown. Listen to these words from Charles Spurgeon. He says, blooming with abounding beauty till the meadows are bespent with gems. The grass has a golden hour, even as man in his youth has a heyday of flowery glory. The scythe ends the blossoming of field flowers and the dew at night weep their fall. Here is the history of grass. Sown, grown, blown, mown, Gone, the history of grass. Sown, grown, blown, mown, gone. And the history of man is not much more. Spurgeon goes on, natural decay would put an end to us both and the grass in due time. Few, however, are less are left to experience the full result of age, for death comes with his scythe and removes our life in the midst of its verdure. This is a man who died at 57 or 58. How great a change in how short a time the morning saw the blooming and the evening sees the withering. Thirdly, it's a brief journey. Thirdly, it's a hard journey. It's a hard journey. Verses 7 to 11. Again, lest we think this is all just the law of entropy, things break down, this is the natural way of things. Verse 7 says that this is why. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been dismayed. There's a difficulty in the way because the wrath of God abides upon man. Everyone born dead in his trespasses and sin. All born dead, estranged from God, far from him and without God in the world and under his wrath. It's not just our mortal condition that he's describing here. It's the judgment that's executed on us by God himself. We have sinned against him and so as to provoke his wrath. It's true that God does not change. But God does produce changes in his dealings with men. Man had his favor and man had the light of his countenance for a short while in Eden. And then man, then his countenance, as it were, was changed toward man and his shining face was turned to one, Amos 9 would say, eyes set for evil and not for good. That is to say, a face to judge, not a face to smile. When Adam fell, God's way or manifestation was turned to one of hostility and righteous opposition. In all likelihood, Moses is thinking of God's manifested wrath on the children of Israel during the time of the wilderness. How many times do they rebel over and over and the wrath of God breaks out? At the golden calf, he judged by killing more than 3,000 of them by the hands of the Levites. When a short while later, they played the harlot and made an idol 
uh, and were and were uh, worshiping idols, he sent serpents among them to bite them uh, and gave them the serpent on the staff that they could look to it and be relieved of this death. But thousands and tens of thousands have died. And then think of this also that because of the disobedience of the tribes when the ten, when the twelve spies were sent in, God said that everyone over the age of twenty years old would not enter the promised land except for Caleb and for Joshua. Manifestations of wrath and hardship and wilderness sojourning, wave after wave of divine judgment. These are the people to whom Moses is writing, people who knew very well the retribution of God. These are people who finished their pilgrimage, but not in the land of rest. Even Moses, because of his disobedience, did not enter the land of rest. Psalm 130, verse 3 has a corollary here. Verse 8 of our text says, You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Hebrews 4 says that all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There is no secret thought. There is no motive of your heart. There is no whisper that you have whispered that isn't known fully to God. Our life is hard and our iniquities are out there naked and laid bare before our judge. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Moses here describes life when God takes account of iniquity and holds them against us. For all our days have declined in your fury, verse 9, and we finish our years with a sigh. But there's a kind of going out with a whimper. Thomas Watson says, We come into the world with a cry, and we go out of it with a groan. Death, the final enemy, seems to prevail over men incessantly. People are dying all around us all the time. Verse 10, again, in fact, when you lose replacement rate, what that actually means is more people are dying in your country than being born in your country. I think the United States might have just, in the last couple of years, entered the non, uh, we are, we are more, fewer babies are being born than people are dying, um, in our country. Um, same is true in China. Very few outliers. Israel's probably the only Western nation that has more babies being born than people dying. Um, probably the fastest replacement rate uh, of growth is Nigeria. People die. So much so that we even say it's a part of life in a kind of delusional moment. Moses says in verse 10, for the days of our life, for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. That's three score and 10, if you were counting that way. Um, or if due to strength, 80 years. Now, Moses died at 120, but what he's saying is 80 is the new 120. Uh, man's life is brief. Man's life is short-lived. The pride of man or his vigor is but labor and sorrow. All of your achievements all of your fame, all of your trophies, all of your all the things in which you took pride, the things you think will last forever, here and gone. My kids uh, swim on a summer swim team and have for the last 10 years. And uh, it's exciting. At every meet, um, when a league or team record is broken, it's announced. Uh, now, there's one girl in their team who's been breaking records most of her life swimming for this team. So if you had, in the 40 years, 50 years of that club prior to that, held the record, there's one girl who probably, if you were in the female swimmers, uh, destroyed your record. And, it, and you know what? They, this is what's fascinating about it. She breaks the record. They say her name. They don't even say the name of the person who held the record that she broke. I mean, that person might be one of the parents sitting there. I held that record. This was my record. <laughs> your name is gone. Your achievements, your achievements are brief. Your pride, so to speak, your labor is but sorrow. You thought it would remain and it's swept away with the rest of things. For soon, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Spurgeon, again, thinking of this bleak portrayal of man's life under the curse, says this. Good men dread that wrath, good men dread that wrath of God beyond conception, for they never ascribe too much terror to it. Bad men are dreadfully convulsed when they awake to a sense of it, to God's terror, but their horror is not greater than it had need be, for it is, that is the wrath of God, a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. Holy Scripture, when it depicts God's wrath against sin, never uses a hyperbole. Again, he's thinking of verse 11. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear do you? 
we have but a faint understanding of how truly opposed God is to our sin. Spurgeon goes on, of God's wrath, it would be impossible to exaggerate it. Whatever feelings of pious awe and holy trembling may move the tender heart, it's never too much moved. Apart from other considerations, the great truth of the divine anger, when most powerfully felt, never impresses the mind with the solemnity in excess of the legitimate result of such a contemplation. In other words, it's even worse than you can possibly imagine. Who understands the power of your anger? It's a brief journey, and it's a hard journey, so long as we sojourn under the wrath of God. But that's not where the psalm ends. We come to our fourth and final consideration, the way back home. A holy, happy, eternal habitation lost to man. To dust you shall return as we labor for a short few years under the heavy hand of judgment. Here's what I want to say to you. But it need not continue this way for you. For those of you who are in Christ Jesus, you know that that heavy hand has been taken off of you. Even as life continues to hasten by, Joy has been put into your heart. Verse 12, verse 12 is a little note of hopefulness. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. There's a, there's a way to get through this life. Doesn't mean that all the difficulties and the tears of it are going to be removed from us immediately, but we are going to be given a joy and a stability in the midst of instability if we can get this heart of wisdom. He first asks God to help him number his days in such a way that he gains this wisdom, which might seem kind of odd. Help me to number my days. But in verse 10, he he's already numbered the days. 70 or maybe 80 if you're really vigorous. Maybe that's, maybe that's the long life. Um, so why is he asking God to help him number his days? Don't we all know the average life expectancy? 77 or 78 for men in America and 81 or 82 for women in America. Um, and we, haven't we, haven't the doctors and the physicians and haven't we, and the geneticists, haven't we numbered our days? But that there's a difference between knowing the number and really taking account of the number. You can know the number quantitatively, but that doesn't mean that you've taken account of the number spiritually. When he says teach us to number our days, it's that accounting of things. There's a sort of shameful stupidity, those are Calvin's words, <laughs> shameful stupidity in the heart of man who knows that his life is short and yet seems to not take account of its brevity. Calvin, somewhat in a longer statement, it is surely a monstrous thing that men can measure all distances without themselves, as they outside themselves. They know how many feet the moon is distant from the center of the earth what space there is between the different planets, and in short, they can measure all the dimensions of both heaven and earth, while yet they cannot number three score and ten years in their own case. It's an amazing statement from a 16th century European. How advanced was science already? And yet, you can't even take an account of the life you're living. No one sets about living rightly without knowing the end of his life, which is death. You will not order your life rightly unless you contemplate your death. This should lead him back to seek a better end, the prize of a heavenly calling. You will seek stability if you take serious account of your own self-instability. Numbering our days soberly and realistically should cause us to live wisely. Jesus speaks of a man who sought to be rich in this life, and he imagined that he had many years of pleasure ahead of him. In fact, so much so that he built barns uh, to handle all of his produce because he planned to be here for a long time. And he says, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. It's, it's good to plan for the future, but it's even better to plan for the eternal future. It's good to plan for the days ahead in this life so that you're not indigent and foolish with what's been given to you, but you must look beyond this. You may not have a tomorrow. You may not have a retirement. You may never pay off your house because you will be gone. These are all things worth planning for, but there's a planning more important still. Verse three is an or verse uh, 13 is an interesting statement. Return, O Lord... 
Which is interesting. In verse 3, God says to you, return to the dust. And here the psalmist reverses it and says, you return to us. God says, return in judgment. The psalmist says, oh Lord, may it be that you return in mercy. In fact, cancel out my return to dust. You return to me. Seeking that the Lord would return and be his abode and be his habitation. In Isaiah 63, verse 10, we read of the Lord that he turned himself to become their enemy and fought against them because of their iniquity, uh, even in the wilderness. In, Psalm, in Isaiah 63, 11, the prophet says there, return for the sake of your servants. And then in verse 64, verse 1 of Isaiah, he says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The, our psalmist, uh, Moses, our psalmist says, return, O Lord. And be sorry for your servants. The word is actually repentance. Um, and the idea is um, change your dealings with us. Be our home again. We tried to make a home and we were fools for trying to make a home in this world. For trying to build a kingdom and find stability here. Here, rust and moth destroy. Here, thieves break in and steal. Here, the, uh, the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Here is no home for an eternal soul. Lord, come Be our home again. Be our habitation for this generation and the generation to come. Jesus says, by the way, the answer to this is Christ Jesus. How does God establish his habitation again with man? It says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John 1.14. God, as it were, pitched his tent again among the sons and daughters of Adam when he sent forth his son. In fact, the words of Isaiah 64, 1 say, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And in fact, in the baptism of Jesus, the heavens are rent. In the form of a dove, he comes down and he says, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Christ Jesus is the answer to the petition for God's return to us. Listen to what he himself says in John 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, He will keep my word and my father will love him. And listen to this. And we, father and son, will come to him and make our abode with him. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. We have traded eternal habitations for that which does not last. Oh, come and pitch the everlasting tent again. Jesus is the tent. Jesus is the habitation. If we flee to him and seek refuge in him, this life will be but a moment, our habitation forever in heaven with him. Verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. It's fascinating. It's a short journey. It's a hard journey, but you can actually sing joyful songs as you traverse through it. Let your work appear to your servants, your majesty to our children. Think of it like this. The watch in the night goes by, and when he awakes, he awakes in joy because he awakes with the Lord. Psalm 17, 15, comparing himself to the righteous whose portion is in this life, the psalmist says, as for me, I shall behold your face. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. He says, make us glad. He says, uh, uh, satisfy us in the morning. Jesus Christ is the day star from on high in which the light of God's countenance and habitation has dawned upon us. That though this life is short and difficult, it is one that can be lived with God and in fellowship with Him through His Son, Christ Jesus. The final petitions come in verses 16 and 17. Let your work appear to your servants and the majesty, uh, and your majesty to their children. First, He asks uh, for an appearance of God's work. In particular, I mean, God is the one who works all things after the counsel of His will, but in particular, this work of redemption, this work of reconciliation, Let your work appear to your servants. Of old, it looks like the ark. It looks like the exodus. It looks like victory over enemies in the Holy Land. In the old, of old, God has shown his work and his mighty deeds. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son and he has shown his work in the death and the resurrection of his son by which he destroys the work of the devil. Oh Lord, that I may see even now your work, the work by which you reestablish an eternal habitation for me and that my children also would see it. The final petition might strike us as strange. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm to us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. 
It's a straight. At the end, he comes right back down to his his daily work, and he says, "Confirm the work of our hands." He says this twice by your grace and by your favor. We might think, boy, why is he thinking about work and what's going on today? He should be thinking about the eternal life that he has in heaven. He should be thinking about the city whose builder and maker is God. He should be thinking, and he's talking about his work. I think the striking thing about it is this. By God's grace, by God's grace, if we have sought refuge in him, we may realistically hope that our lives, our daily lives now, have an enduring quality. That we are even now, even today, laying up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. You are even right now working in a way that counts for eternity. It's not works righteousness. It's not self-salvation. But it actually does imbue and fill our daily lives with a worth that matters for eternity. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Paul encourages us this way, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, what he means is here and now, is not in vain in the Lord. Finally, John's words in Revelation fourteen thirteen, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, the labors of this life, and listen to what it says, for their deeds follow with them. Um, You can be about heaven now. You can live now in a way that actually counts for your eternal state, that this short and difficult travail of tears can be a short life, a breath in which you are given the grace to work in a way in which your works will follow with you and they will witness to the grace of God in your life. May God's favor rest upon us so we might pass through this little life with the joy of the eternal glory already begun in us. Let's ask his help for that. God, we thank you. We thank you that you have returned to us, that you have rent the heavens, that you have come down, that you have sent your own son to tabernacle among us, that you have pitched your tent here on earth among sinners again and called us to leave our sins and to flee for you, to you for refuge. God, we thank you for the glory that has begun in us. We thank you that you are our dwelling place throughout all generations. God, I pray that you would give each one in this room strong and abiding faith in you through your son, Christ Jesus, that not only we, but our children would know your work of redemption and entrust themselves to it. Lord, we bless you and thank you for all that you've done to bring us back to yourself and for the heavenly habitation that even awaits us in glory. Teach us to believe these things and to live in light of them, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.